0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Tindal Talks. It's the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee and today we are going to talk about the impact of Brexit on climate and environmental policies. So the UK has now formally left the EU. And just before Christmas, the two sides struck a new trade and cooperation agreement. So what does this all mean for climate and environmental policies in the UK and the EU? Our guest today is Professor Andy Jordan from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia, and he is also the co-chair of Brexit and Environment, which is an ESRC-funded knowledge network. Hi, Andy, and thank you for being our guest in today's episode. Hi. Before we start all of the nitty-gritty details and delving into the EU and Brexit. Um, can you introduce yourself first so our listeners can get to know you a little bit more and also the work that you do?
1: Yes, my name is Andy Jordan. I'm a professor of environmental policy at uh, the University of East Anglia and where I also work on climate policy in the Tyndall Centre. And I've been researching um, well, EU environment and climate policy for about 30 years, Um, not only looking at how policies are developed at EU level, but also looking at how they have over time impacted upon and affected national uh, policies in, in the EU. So, of course, including the UK when it was a member state, and in the sort of EU studies literature, that's known as Europeanization, the impact that the EU has on its member states. So I spent a long time looking at that. I guess over the last seven or eight years, I've also become increasingly involved in what academics now term impact. So trying to think about and also affect uh, thinking and informed thinking outside academia. And I've done that through a network uh, which a number of us uh, set up uh, called Brexit and Environment. Uh, Vivian Gravy at, at uh, Queen's University Belfast, uh, myself, and uh, Charlie Burns at the University of Sheffield, with the, the co chairs of that. And a lot of that work has been, yeah, more impact focused. But eventually, I think when um, Brexit dies down a little bit, we may have some time to go back and actually do some. Research on 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 um, on the uh, on the impacts of Brexit. I'm not quite of sure what that will be termed. I I guess it would be termed something like de-Europeanisation or um, un Europeanization.
0: It seems that you've had a lot of experience dealing with uh, Brexit and EU and policies, and so I think we're very lucky to have you today. And there's you know no one better to to explain all of this uh, policy jargons to us. And so maybe let's start with a bit of a background. What is Brexit and how did it come about and what role did you play in all of this?
1: Right. Okay. Yes. Well, like any sort of area of research that it has its jargon, but essentially Brexit means the British exit from the EU. So the UK left the EU officially at the end of January 2020. Um, and left the single market, fully left the single market and the customs union uh, at the end of, uh, of 2020. And it's the first and I think only country to have formally left the EU uh, after 40, almost 47 years of, of membership. So it was a really important uh, moment for Britain, the UK, and it was certainly a very important moment for the EU as well, because yes, it was the first time that a member state had actually left the EU. At that point, member states had only ever joined uh, the EU. How did it come about? Well, (laughs) how long have you got? I mean, I think think a really important uh, reference point for the debates about Brexit is is, uh, a point that um, Winston Churchill made, I think at the Tory party conference in 1948, so just after the war, he was no longer the prime minister of course then he'd lost to the labor government but he talked about the uk sitting within three interlocking circles so the circle of empire the circle of uh, of of the us the relationship the special relationship with the with the us and the circle um, of, of europe and he felt and hoped that the UK would sit within these three interlocking circles and would have an influence in all three of them. Well, unfortunately, that's not how things played out, that there was a Suez crisis in 1956. And, and at that point, I think even more so than before, I think the UK government began to realize that actually these circles were not interlocking. And actually some of the circles of this circle of empire was declining really or shrinking quite rapidly. I think these concerns were sort of crystallized by uh, a former secretary of state in the Truman uh, uh, US Truman government uh, Dean Acheson he he referred to great Britain, Britain losing an empire but not yet finding a role and um I think that provoked a lot of controversy but I think in essence it was it, it he put his finger on something important there because at that point, Britain wasn't quite sure of where it was going. Um, it, it eventually, at the third attempt, uh, joined the EU. But it joined the EU, essentially a, a club of industrialised states, relatively late, uh, later than other member states, and when the basic rules of of the club had already been uh, set. So it it was joining something slow, and not necessarily of its uh, immediate choosing, and quite quickly the UK gained a reputation for being, well, not the not the awkward partner, but as as the academic Stephen George has very um, helpfully written, an awkward partner. So it it, it accepted European integration in some areas but there were lots of other areas you know like the euro for example Schengen uh, free trade area where it either didn't want to um integrate as as rapidly as as other member states or actively was a break on on deeper integ- integration so you asked then why did the UK leave the EU well I think there were some important underlying causes, and I've already alluded to some of them already. You know, the fact that the EU membership was a second best option. It wasn't the first option. There was a feeling as well within the wider public that, 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 that Europe was something kind of over there. It wasn't here in, in the UK. It was, you know, it was something that really better suited other other, other countries of continental Europe. We, we, we were an island state, still are an island state. We don't really feel culturally as integrated um, as other member states. There was lots of public misunderstanding I think as well of of how the EU operated you know I think politicians for some you know for obvious reasons perhaps didn't want to um, uh, be clear about why the UK was entering and didn't really explain it uh, and, and its inner workings to the to the UK population and Eurobarometer polls that the European Commission regularly took showed that UK citizens were some of the least well informed of, of all those in the in the 28 member states. So I think there were some important underlying causes for Brexit, but I think there were also some kind of proximate causes as well. I think the financial crisis uh, hit lots of uh, poorer sections of society. Uh, leaving the EU came to be seen as a as sort of, or presented as a panacea, particularly by the, by politicians from the sort of Brexiteer part of the Tory Party. Um, UKIP was rising rapidly in in, in influence. Um, David Cameron at the time, I think, uh, miscalculated, thought that he could win uh, um, um, a referendum of course didn't and immediately resigned after the after the referendum was a result was announced and i think it's i think we all now realize that the remain side also fought a relatively bad uh campaign focusing on economy rather than other things um where does this leave environment well i think the thing about environment is actually environment policy started around the same time as the UK joined the EU in 1973. So you couldn't say at that point that the UK was joining an environmental policy that was already developed, it was actually joining something and part of something. And of course it was also an awkward state on certain issues, it it consistently blocked EU action on eco-taxation for example, It didn't want the EU to get involved in sort of relatively local issues like land use planning. And it pushed very hard for what in Brussels speak is referred to as subsidiarity. So taking decisions at the lowest sort of uh, most local level. But I think it also was influential as well. It it pushed some areas, um, environmental and climate policy areas. It was a big fan of of policy integration, you know, greening um, sectors of 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 the UK, of the EU economy, you know, like transport, agriculture, fisheries. It was very keen on policy uh, evaluation uh, on better regulation, you know, ensuring that regulation was well uh, targeted and well focused and took account of the costs and the benefits. It was a big, big fan of the European Environment Agency, so of collecting data and basing decisions on the best available data. And crucially, I think for, for, for people interested in climate policy, it's consistently been a supporter of stronger climate policies, particularly mitigation uh, policies, but I think has also acted as a um, an exponent of um, you know strong and effective adaptation policies as well not necessarily EU level though what role did I play well <laughs> relatively minor in I think in the s- s- scheme of things but I think I was involved in, in the referendum process itself that Charlie Burns um, uh, Vivian and myself I think realized quite early on that um, with a referendum this was a you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a discussion and a debate about the the UK's role in the EU and we uh, developed a, a large systematic review which we produced in um, in association with um, Green Alliance, a sort of the charity that helps to coordinate the environmental groups. Um, after the referendum um, we uh, associated, we created something, uh, a network, or sort of like a think tank known as uh, Brexit and Environment, which was associated with Greener UK. Greener UK was the big um, pan NGO uh, network, which uh, brought together 12 of the largest uh, environmental NGOs in the UK. Together had about 12 or 13, um, sorry, eight or 9 million members. I think one of the largest and most effective attempts at really coordinating all the NGOs. I also became involved in um, um, advising DEFRA. I was also part of the European Environment Agency Scientific Committee for, for four years between 2016 and 2020. So I kind of saw it from a number of different perspectives um, within government and also within, as part of parliament and also uh, from the NGO perspective as well.
0: Um, I think that's a really interesting uh, background and context that you gave us earlier. Like, I myself didn't know that, you know, uh, jo- the UK joining the EU and and leaving, you know, sp- spanned back as as far back as Winston Churchill, um, and the Empire, and now leaving, um, seems like a very very long history. Um, and of course, the role that you played in in the referendum is also a really big, uh, important. I think, important role. Um, But before we start talking about specifically about the impacts of Brexit on policies, maybe also a bit of background and overview on the UK and EU's climate policies before Brexit. Uh, What were the most important policies and what did they aim to achieve?
1: Around the time that the UK left the EU, the EU probably had somewhere between about five and 600 major kind of environmental policies, you know, add in climate policies as well, and policies um, linking environment into other policy sectors. It adds up to, to a lot. Um, it also um, had, um, you know, a part, a special part of the European Commission de- formulating new policies, the uh, DG environment. It had an agency or has an agency based up in Copenhagen, European Environment Agency, it is a specialist part of the European Parliament, a special committee, very influential committee dealing with environmental issues. So there was a whole kind of set of governance arrangements generating lots of policy uh, over time. I think the crucial th- thing is, is that is that the policies developed at EU level had significantly co-evolved with the policies at UK level and across the other member states. I think Nigel Haig, a um, very distinguished commentator on on uh, EU environmental affairs, I think, I think said, and it, I think it's always stayed with me, that, that by around 2000, uh, most if not all UK policies were being developed uh, at EU level or in association with the EU. And even in the areas where the UK retained competence power to develop its own independent policies, those policies were, in a sense, framed by what what the European Union uh, w- was doing. It's sometimes said that 80% of of, of uh, policies of UK policies should be developed um, with the EU. I, I mean, I'm i never completely been sure of of the of the um, uh, how correct that actual figure is but i think it 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 helpfully gives an indication of of where the 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 policy making effort uh, was being made now as that policy accumulated it it began to europeanize the member states uh, including the uk even member states that had you know relatively well established relatively relatively successful uh, and relatively well formulated policies uh, national policies and really what what the eu was disseminating was essentially policy um, it wasn't disseminating uh, a, a sort of a, a form of government it doesn't require its member states to you know change their ministries in a certain way uh, it doesn't force them to set up or you know um uh, dismember ministries. It, essentially what it's doing is disseminating policy, policies that s- seek to achieve certain endpoints, and it's really left to the member states to determine how to achieve those um, endpoints. End in the systematic review we did uh, just before the referendum, in which was discussed during the referendum, we looked uh, through, I think, 700 academic references and essentially what we found was the following we found that the policy uh, in, and i'm thinking am talking now mainly about the uk but but policy had led to higher standards within the uk so um even in areas where you know the, the uk had been active before being a member st- uh, before joining the eu so for areas like air policy uh, water policy so EU membership drove a lot of investment, huge investments in things like sewage treatment. The big Times Tideway tunnel that's being built in London, for example, um, to uh, clean the Thames is significantly affected by EU legislation. You know, the development, the massive development of the offshore wind industry in large part, I think, is down to the requirements of, of, of EU uh, legislation and the confidence that EU legislation gave investors to, to to invest. So lots of, so policy I think has had really significant uh, effects on the ground in all the member states and particularly um, the UK. As I said, it doesn't really affect the structure of government. You know, government has, you know, changed the structure of the of DEFRA, for example, over the years, but that wasn't because of what the EU was requiring. I think more subtly, I think we can say that the EU also uh, changed the policy style, the way in which policies were implemented in the UK. They became more precautionary, they became more transparent, they became more open. But I think it's important to remember that It's very difficult to know what the counterfactual would have been. What would have happened if the UK had not joined the EU? But these essentially are the the main sort of impacts that we found in our systematic um, review. Now, why does this matter, this idea of co-evolution? I think it matters because, well, to quote um, former um, director general of the WTO, Pascal Lamy, and who was also um, before that spent a lot of time in Brussels, he said that because of coevolution, um, Brexit was like removing the eggs from an omelette. It was like sort of ch- changing something back to its constituent parts. Really, obviously, rather, rather difficult indeed. And I think this, I think, has proved to be a rather insightful uh, observation um, about exactly what brexit has involved in a mature area of policy making like like the environment and like climate change
0: i think you know we've now had an idea of how much integrated the uk policies are within the eu and how as you said they've co-evolved and so now that you know we've actually the uk has left the eu what poly policy impacts was Brexit expected to produce within the UK and have these expectations been borne out in practice? Or is it still too early to tell?
1: As I said at the beginning, the UK left the EU at the end of January 2020, but it didn't really leave, you know, the the single market and the customs union, which essentially is the way that the EU operates, until the end of December. So we've had what six weeks of 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 Brexit. A lot of the discussion about Brexit over the last well five years or so has really been about what Brexit may in future produce. What we're actually now seeing are the effects of Brexit playing out in practice. So the short answer to the question is: I think it's still too early to tell. The slightly <laughs> longer the slightly longer answer is. Well, first of all, I think certainly amongst the environmental groups uh, and the environmental sector in the UK, Brexit was not expected. Um, the environmental sector more or less aligned with Remain, um, and uh, during the referendum, and um, but the Remain campaign itself really focused on on economic issues. Um, you know, you, you you may remember if you were in the UK. Um, it was all about, um, you know, numbers on the side of the bus, uh, taking back control and, you know, um, the tre- Treasury uh, predictions of, of, of certain sort of types of impacts. The Leave side did not cover the environment at all. It didn't mention it. It just focused on a small number, small subset of issues and environment wasn't one of them. As I remember the c- campaign itself, the referendum campaign, and I spent quite a lot of time sitting in meetings with NGOs. They were more interested in in looking at the benefits of of EU of environment of environmental benefits uh, of, of EU membership. We did all sorts of, um, and those were laid out in the systematic review that we did, and other documents that Parliament had produced, and and also um, um, Institute for European Environmental Policy also did a very uh, large review as well but but they weren't really interested in some of the scenarios uh, that we painted in in our report sort of scenarios of what what might happen if there was a vote to leave and we looked at the scenario of Norway we looked at the scenario of you know free trade agreements there was virtually no discussion of that at all Um, which which I can I can understand was probably the case, you know, they didn't want to think about losing, they would prefer to think about and campaign to win. But it meant that on the 24th of June, um, when the result came in, there was no manual, there was no blueprint, there was no guidebook, there was no route map at all for for Brexit, um, at at least as it it was expected to play out in the environment and climate change um, areas. So I think that the sense, more than anything, within within the environmental sector, as I remember it anyway, was just one of really deep shock. You know, the, the sector had not only um, lost; it had aligned with the losing side, but didn't have a manual or blueprint for how you know policies might then begin to to play out. Um, I think it took a few months for the environmental sector to come together, and they did that very successfully. They formed Greener UK. Um, the uh, select committees in Parliament began to mobilise very rapidly. They began to uh, set up uh, inquiries to look at um, all the different areas of policy and think about how they might change as as, as uh, Brexit was implemented, but. Two things, I think, began to rise up the agenda within the sector, the, po- the environmental sector. First of all was the fate of these, you know, five, six 600, 700 major policies. What was going to happen to those? Were they literally going to be struck from the statute book um, and, you know, completely disappear, in which case there will be massive policy gaps? Uh, you think, if you think that by 2000, and sixteen, the point when the referendum result was uh, announced, that whatever eighty or ninety percent of policy was effectively EU derived, you know that was a huge, a huge that would constitute a massive shock uh, to the policy system. But also, I think a number of us also began to point out that the policy, while the policy gaps were potentially uh, important, also were what we term governance gaps. So gaps that would appear in the governance system once the UK left the EU. So what would happen, for example, to all the policy formulation functions that the Commission uh, had had performed since 1973? Who was going to scrutinise all the legislation and co-adopt it now that the European Parliament was going to be involved? Who was going to monitor um, and collect data on the environment now that you know the UK might be leaving the European Environment Agency so you know and and and, and crucially as well who was going to enforce uh, all of the policy uh, traditionally what happens is the European Commission oversees the implementation of uh, EU policy in its member states when implementation is perceived to be um, sub-optimal sub, um, uh, a complaint can be made to the Commission, the Commission then starts what a term infringement proceedings against particular non-compliant member states, which can eventually lead to a case before the European Court of Justice, which is the ultimate arbiter of uh, compliance with EU law, and eventually to particular member states being fined significant amounts of money for not complying with EU requirements. And so that whole system of governance I think was also uh, uppermost in the minds of, of 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 many people, including the people that I was working with at the time within the NGO movement. So, have these uh, have these effects been borne out? You asked. Well, I think starting with the policy gaps, um, I think complete removal from the statute book has not happened. Um, I think that would have created so much investor uncertainty that it just wouldn't have been uh, a viable option. Uh, So I think rightly the government decided quite early on, the May government that was, that they would essentially copy and paste all EU legislation into national legislation so it could be retained. And in fact there's a whole new area of E, of UK environmental policy that's now called EU retained policy and it actually constitutes the main um, the most significant part of of national policy is this retained EU policy. What we did warn so there haven't been massive policy gaps but I think as as we have uh, warned though in reports that we have done there is nonetheless still a risk that this retained legislation is not actively updated and refined and monitored and we coined the term zombie legislation, legislation that effectively was on the statute but was in all in practical terms you know um, inert and possibly dying. Um, we did a small report called regression by default which is if you're interested is on the um, Brexit environment uh, website so policy gaps have not really, and at least now, been really significant. On the governance gaps, <clears throat> well, a, a mixed picture, I think. Um, so, yes, there have been, um, um, there will be a big gap in the uh, functions that were provided by the European Court of Justice and the um, European uh, Commission in relation to enforcement, because... The new body that the UK government promised to put in place, the Office of Environmental Protection, uh, promised will be in place by uh, 1st of January uh, 2021, is not in place uh, and will not be in place until, uh, we now think, until at least the autumn. So there's a gap there, there's a governance gap there. It's still not clear um, what role Parliament will play, though. Um, in, in in overseeing and um, actively scrutinising uh, new all, all the retained policy as well, so there's possibly a governance gap there. And then um, and then we have all of the data and the monitoring that the information that the um, UK used to collect and transmit to the Commission and then on into the European Environment Agency. Um, that data now is not being uh, submitted, so when the European Environment Agency produces its future reports on comparative environmental performance within Europe, and, and I'm not just talking about the EU because the EEA has a set of associated members as well, um, um, you know, like Iceland, um, it, it also um, will mean that there will effectively be a blank space uh, where the UK uh, used to sit so it's going to be more difficult to actually work out whether policy uh, in the UK is is having the same um, outcomes or generating the same outcomes as it is in the member states and it's going to be um, more difficult to make comparative assessments of, of performance.
0: Um, i think you were right earlier when you said that you know a lot of people were quite surprised about the brexit vote um and as we've seen that you know there's been not much blueprint actually laid out and that's led to a lot of um you know new agreements that we saw between 2016 and 2020 and as you said it's too early to tell you know what what the impacts of the policy in the policies are but now that a new agreement has actually been struck and agreed on um, before Christmas last year, and we've officially left the EU. How will climate policies change with this new agreement that was struck?
1: Well, again, there's a short answer and a long answer. <laughs> I think the short answer is we, we don't yet know. Um, but before I give you the longer answer let me first of all say something about the uh what in um eu circles is known as the tca the trade and cooperation agreement so this was what the uk and is effectively the trade agreement that the EU, uk and the uk struck whenever it was 24th of december just before christmas it's over 1200 pages long you know it's a huge you know, you know like a telephone directory uh a huge document one of the largest ever trade agreements ever struck but normally what trade agreements do is that they reduce frictions at the border they facilitate trade this is the first time that a free trade agreement has actually increased frictions at the border and effectively facilitated divergence you know it's 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 reduced the, the free trade so it's doubly difficult therefore to work out what effects it has had because it's not it's, it's not a normal trade agreement. It also isn't a normal trade because it has all sorts of, of non-trade aspects uh, added on to it as well. So it, it's quite difficult to tell. Uh, and it's relatively early, as I said um, earlier on in the um, in the podcast, to to, to to see how things are playing out. But I think in the short term, and I'm thinking specifically about climate change, I, I don't think there is really going to be that much um Change. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, climate change is referred to as an essential element of the TCA and um, alongside things like democracy and respect for the rule of law. This means that it is, you know, a foundational element of the TCA. It's it's actually being referred to as the most climate focused ever, uh, uh, free trade agreement ever so if if either side defaults on um, its climate change uh, commitments in the TCA then prima facie that would provide a uh, a case for the whole agreement being terminated so really really important in the agreement as well both sides effectively commit to the same medium to term long term medium to long term objectives for 2030 and, and of course for 2050 net zero They also commit to um, both having systems of of, of carbon pricing in place uh, and over time to thinking about how they can align those uh, systems more um, effectively. So one of the things that the UK could have done when it left the EU and of course left the EU emissions trading system was completely stopped Uh, emissions trading and replaced it with a carbon tax. But after a lot of internal discussion within government, decided that what it would do is effectively replicate the EU uh, ETS within the UK. So we now have an EU ETS and a UK ETS. And over time, both sides have uh, agreed to look for ways of linking those uh, more um, effectively. Incidentally, that's another reason why it's difficult to um, predict the effect of the TCA because the TCA actually leaves lots of areas of unfinished business and and, and, and carbon pricing is indeed uh, one of them. I think what the, the, the area of climate change tells us, though, is that when the UK and the EU agree on something, as they do with climate change, actually they can achieve something really very ambitious. Uh, As I said, it's probably the most climate focused FTA ever. Um, So when they share the same objectives, then a lot can be um, achieved. I think where we will, where we're more likely to, sorry, where we are more likely to see change though, is when we move out of the area of climate change into the broader sort of area of, of environment policy. Now, environment policy over time, EU environment policy, has essentially focused on two issues. um, Traded products and non-traded product issues. So, traded products, things like, you know, emission reduction um, requirements for cars or vans or tractors, other things that travel across borders like waste, for example. I think generally those we're going to see less change because anybody in the UK wanting to trade with the EU will effectively have to meet those product standards um, to to import, to export their goods into the EU and vice versa, you know, a large trading um, body like the EU is not necessarily going to want to produce cars uh, to different uh, performance standards, environmental performance standards, for a relatively small market like like the, the UK. So, so I think on traded products, we're likely to see less uh, divergence. Where we're likely to see more divergence, I think, are, thing, are for things that, are, that, that well, in, in the Brussels speaker, known as non-product standards. Things to do with nature, the quality of water, habitats, environmental impact assessment, strategic environmental assessment, things that sort of take place behind the border and there was a whole uh, set of um, uh, debates around this uh, during the negotiation of the TCA. Um, Essentially, well how can I put it, during the negotiation the EU was very keen to bind the UK into similar product standards and similar non-product standards but the UK was unwilling to do that it wanted to uh, retain its regulatory autonomy and essentially has retained its right to set non-product standards in a way that it sees um, that it would like to in a way that it sees fit subject of course to certain kind of restrictions which maybe we'll come back to um, later on, restrictions on what are called non-regression.
0: Well, it's good to know that even if um, the UK is now leaving the EU, that it seems like both parties are um, prioritising climate change and and the environment, as you said, in the TCA. So that's good news for all of us. Maybe let's go to the local scene uh, nationally in the UK. So, you know, the UK has four nations. England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And how will the UK implement new policies given that, you know, we are four nations and policies need to be coordinated. So what about devolution in the UK? What will happen to climate policy?
1: Well, I think Brexit has already sprung many sort of surprises. And um, I I mean, who could have imagined that, you know, the, the Northern Ireland protocol would and, you know the Northern Island border would be such an important and almost critical part of the whole discussion about brexit. I think it's like to spend to spring future surprises as, as well. and I think devolution is is really one of them and that's why I think your question is really, really um, pertinent. So if brexit had happened uh, before devolution had uh, taken place, so essentially before 1998, Um, It it would have it would have happened in a rather different way because essentially what would have happened is uh, all the powers that the EU had would have then been moved down to the national level in London uh, across all sorts of areas to do with the environment like agriculture, environment, fisheries and things like that. And so really devolution and, and the local dimension wouldn't have been so important. But of course what happened in 1998 is the Labour government gave uh, certain powers to uh, the devolved uh, administrations and crucially a lot of these uh, issues are of an environmental nature. So agriculture for example, environment, fisheries, uh, some areas of transport are to do with environment. and so crucially, what happens now to those powers that are then moved down from the EU level? Do they sort of go to London and straight down to um, the devolved uh, nations, or are there some of them now retained by London? Now, this may seem like a relatively kind of arcane, um, slightly sort of geekish discussion, but it's really, really important, because as well as devolving certain matters down to the um, devolved administrations, there are also other areas that are reserved to the UK government and were reserved to the UK government in 1998. And again, crucially, these are also environmentally related. So taxation, for example, is a reserve power. Trade, the ability to conduct international trade agreements is also a reserve power. So what devolution allied to Brexit created was a whole set of internal tensions which are now starting to play out in relation to uh, Brexit. Now a lot of these tensions between 1998 and 2020-2021 were were, were sort of almost um, latent pressures because as long as the UK was a member of the EU the EU policies sort of set the broader framework and prevented the different um, the different part, the devolved administrations from diverging. What's really changed now, in addition to Brexit, is that is that the political is that the political priorities of the administrations have all started to diverge. So we've seen with Brexit the rise of nationalism in in England, um, the Brexiteer. Uh, movement is essentially an, an, an english national nationalist movement within scotland you've got the rise of the scottish nationalists um they uh, are generally pro-eu uh, they want to align and remain aligned with the eu standards so there's there's that as well which is has altered things um and then of course now there's the whole question of of trade so um When the UK uh, negotiated with the EU, when it negotiated the TCA, it was negotiating about something that had already been fairly well negotiated over the last 47 years. When, on the other hand, it starts to negotiate with other parts of new trade agreements with other parts of the world, you know, India, Australia, um, um, the US... Um, it's going to inflame these frictions between um, the the, the government in London and the UK government in London and the devolved administrations, particularly because areas like trade are reserved to the UK government, but the practical um, implementation of them is a devolved um, matter. Now, there are lots of, I think, ironies around Brexit, but one of the strangest irony is that now we've left the EU and the EU internal market we're now talking about establishing and discussing a whole new internal market within the UK Um, and we're also talking not about you know leaving uh, a federal quasi-federal state within the EU but we're now talking about or people are pushing for you know a different a new type of federal uh, state settlement within the UK. So it's it's slightly ironic uh, that this is happening. If 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 you're interested in knowing more, um, Brexit Environment published uh, a policy uh, a report in October 2018, I think, called "Environmental Policy in a Devolved United Kingdom," which I think in which we tried to anticipate and discuss some of these uh, tensions, which, as I said, are likely to pay out in the next um, uh, few years.
0: I think it's important for our listeners to know um, exactly how you know the four nations will be coordinating, um, and if there's a plan for that because it seems very a little bit more complicated. Uh, especially you you mentioned earlier about the tensions between or among the four nations that are currently happening. Um, so that's something that I think we will see play out in the next few years um, once Brexit has been fully implemented. And so I guess we'll now go to future, you know, what about the future? How are UK-EU relations likely to evolve now that Brexit is behind us?
1: Well, of course, (laughs) Brexit isn't behind us. We're only just starting Brexit. I mean, it's sometimes said that Brexit is not a a thing, it's a process. And I think we'll now see that process playing out in the next few years and, 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 well, decades, actually. I think there are, I think I see two um, scenarios, I think, um, likely scenarios. I think and I think before, before explaining those, let me just say something about the TCA because what the TCA did is it committed both sides to not regressing their standards. So they were they undertook not to regress their standards to achieve uh, investment and trade advantages but if either side felt that the other side had regressed and or that that side wanted to progress whereas the other side wanted to stay the same they could um, essentially um, the term was used was rebalancing mechanisms that what they could effectively done do was restrict um, access to their own um, markets uh, to account for the losses that um that, that would um ensue so for example if the uk if the eu suddenly wanted to tighten its uh, emission reduction standards for, for for mitigation you know large combustion plants or something like that uh and the uk uh didn't um then you know the 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 the, the, the and, and, and if this was all discussed um, and and uh, agreed on within arbitration panels, then the EU would be able to, for example, um, restrict access to its market, or or perhaps um, uh, subject goods to, to certain tariffs that were moving into the internal market. So I think one possible scenario, um, which I think as been, I think, caricatured as perhaps Singapore upon Thames, is where the UK tries to regress um, or stay a certain level as the EU progresses. And then we might see all sorts of disputes about regression. We might see some of these arbitration panels becoming much more active, you know, lots of tit-for-tat arguments, Um, use of these of this rebalancing mechanism within the trade and cooperation agreement, leading to you know limitations on trade access. So I think that's one possible scenario. Another scenario is actually that actually nothing changes, um, because um, and and so quite a few trade experts I think have, have have suggested this might happen because because essentially environment is a relatively popular area in the UK. Uh, because actually the UK was actually a supporter of relatively high standards within the EU, then when Brexit, uh, you know, when the Brexit process started, the UK might actually do exactly what it was doing all along and just continue progressing its environmental policies. I mean, if that was the case, then, you know, w- w- why <laughs> why push for Brexit? But anyway, that's a debate for another time. My own sense is that actually... the we're more likely to have some combination of the two so not complete divergence and also not some of, of effectively stasis of no change uh, at all and i think it's going to be a mixture of the of the two i think it's going to be a relatively sort of um i think one dimension of 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 variation is going to be between the product standards and the non-product standards of Different difference that I outlined earlier on. I think we're going to see um, another uh, variation is going to be between the four nations. Remember that this Northern Ireland is still within the single market, so we'll continue to align with EU standards. Scotland politically has committed to aligning dynamically with everything that the EU uh, has done and will do in future. Um, um, and Wales is still to make a decision, and we'll find out more uh, after the elections in May. So the eventual outcome it will vary across you know these different across these different dimensions. And I think there's an FT columnist called Janan Ganesh who talked about the accumulation of marginal gains, and he referred to this drawing on. I think he was referring to how the uh, Olympic cycling team had achieved so much, you know, lots of relatively small uh, um, improvements in performance or change in themselves are not really that big. But as they accumulate over time, they give one side or move one side in a significantly different direction to the other. So I think a lot of this is going to be determined by the accumulation of marginal gains and of marginal losses across these different areas of, 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 of policy. I don't think we're going to see a huge amount in relation to climate change. Where we are more likely to see change uh, are in relatively, for the for now, I think relatively small areas, and some of these might emerge as sort of course celebre we We've already seen a discussion around uh, neonics, a type of pesticide used for sugar beet where the UK wants to move more slowly than the EU uh gene editing where the UK wants to move more rapidly than the EU and then also just this just this weekend a discussion about whether uh, bottom trawling of of near shore waters very environmentally destructive activity could be restricted in the UK more rapidly than it is um in the EU so we're going to we might see these sort of building up over time and I would imagine the UK NGOs And also the UK government will be keen to identify areas where they think regression has occurred or where progression um, has occurred. I think, though, that the really big um, uh, sort of corps célèbre are going to be in relation to the big free trade agreements, particularly a free trade, trade agreement with Australia and the US. And then I think the debate about hormone treated beef and coronated chicken is really going to blow up. And, and you know could really potentially be a, an inflection point where policy really begins to move in one direction um, or the other and then of course it also in part depends on the way in which de- devolution um, plays out I mean it could be within 10 years we have an independent um, Scotland which has said uh, that it wants to rejoin the EU so yes difficult, difficult to predict.
0: Yes, so I think it will be quite interesting to see how, you know, their UK-EU relations will progress or regress over the next few years. And we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. And I think just before we end the podcast, I always like to, um, to ask something about. What our listeners can do as citizens. So in this topic, what will be the public's role in shaping new policies? And how can citizens like like you, like me, like people who listen to us ensure that the UK has ambitious climate and environmental policies?
1: Oh, very interesting. I I think this plays into the big debate between Remain and Lee, doesn't it, about what the EU was really what type of system the EU uh, is. I mean, the Brexiteers see it as being remote, uh, obscure and democratic. Europhiles, on the other hand, Remainers say that it's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's 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 certainly not a, a super state. Uh, it certainly has systems of, um, you know, political accountability and, and transparency, which are as good as, as they are in, in, in the UK. But of course, in the referendum, you know the idea that that the power, the decision-making power, was going to move from the EU down to the UK level and possibly lower was was really, I think, more than anything, what won that what won the the referendum for Leave. You know, it was the take back control that slogan, um, which which seemed to really resonate with lots of people, particularly people who felt that they had been left behind, um, had struggled during the um, during the uh, you know, post 2008 uh, crisis, who never had had the EU explained to them by politicians, who I think weren't really fully aware of, of the benefits that it provided to them. The big question now, though, is OK, so the control has come back to the UK. Where is it actually going to go to? Um, this was not a debate. This was not part of the debate during the referendum. And it's only now a debate that is actually starting to emerge within the UK. And already there are conflicts emerging in relation to where that control will go. So I think one line of conflict is between parliament and government. And we saw that right through the long, bitter dispute about what Brexit Brexit should take and even whether Brexit should occur at all. Um, You can see it, for example, playing out in relation to the Office for Environmental Protection so Parliament would like uh, greater control over you know setting the strategy and the budget and and the and the and the leadership of the OEP whereas the government wants to keep those things firmly under the government's control. Uh, we've also seen it in relation to um, the uh, retention of all that EU law. The UK Parliament wanted to have that all scrutinised and wants to retain control over that to ensure that it's changed. Whereas the government would like to use secondary legislation to make changes without Parliament um, having uh, the ability to scrutinise it carefully. And of course, we have the ratification of of new free trade agreements. You know, Parliament wants to be fully involved in those things uh, and wants a veto over them if it doesn't meet climate change or other. Uh, essential requirements. The government essentially wants to the ability to reserve that power to itself. So there's there's a debate going on between Parliament and government. There's a debate going on between London and the devolveds. You can see that playing out within Northern Ireland uh, as well. Um, and then finally we've got the FTAs, this, these new free trade agreements, these things which were meant to be the whole purpose for, for leaving the EU. These are the things that are going to um, um, ensure that, that, that the UK prospers outside of the EU. But, you know, if you've ever looked at a free trade agreement, they are, they are hugely complicated, you know, massive, you know, huge piles of, of paper, um, every bit, if, if not more opaque than the EU, subject to far less democratic scrutiny, Um, you know heavily influenced by um, by uh, lawyers who are hired by big business and by governments to to you know carve out the best possible deal that they can find for themselves so I think really what we find about control is is really well two things I think first of all the environmental NGOs Um, outside the EU are going to have to do a lot more fighting for environmental protection for themselves. They can't rely on the EU, the Parliament and the Commission to help them. Uh, They've got to do, they've got to stand up themselves and fight and do more of the fighting for themselves. And I think there's also going to be um, a, uh, a challenge also for DEFRA. It's going to have to work a lot harder to fight its own corner in Whitehall. And just last week, the public accounts committee of parliament uh, criticized defra for, for lacking clout for, for really not really fighting hard enough and having the the uh, you know the the, the 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 power within whitehall to win the really important things i think some good things have come out of 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 brexit though i mean who would have ever thought that we would be discussing the finer points of the difference between customs unions and single markets on the ten o'clock news—it's—it's it's another one of the ironies of, of, of Brexit that that actually, UK citizens arguably know more about the EU outside the EU than they ever did, within the EU and i've i've seen in my own teaching that that suddenly students are a lot more interested i mean not just in the eu i've mean, even even had students asking for extra lectures and that really never ever happens but it started to happen in relation to brexit but i think people are more interested in politics at least my my students are kind of more interested in in politics they want to know where decisions are being made how they're being scrutinized what effects they're being are they having and and who's actually checking that, that that policies are being properly implemented, and I think perhaps we we took the, some of these things for granted when we were EU member state an EU member state, but I I think that's no longer the case. We've taken back control. Right, okay, what are we going to do with it?
0: a lot of work for us to do to ensure that the UK has ambitious uh, climate policies and I think you know there's lots of things of course that our listeners can do like maybe join organizations to help campaign to the parliament or their local MPs and such Um, and it's good to know that students and young people are being involved um, in this kind of talks in this uh, politics um And yes, so thank you for joining us today, Andy. I hope our listeners have gained a better understanding of how Brexit is affecting climate and environmental policies in the UK. And of course, we've also learned that Brexit is likely to be an unfolding process rather than a one-off event. And of course, in which case, um, if there are more things to talk about in the future, some updates, of course, we will invite you back to give us an update for another episode. And to our... (laughs) Very, very,
1: very happy to come back and and give a part two if you want.
0: Yes, of course. And thanks for listening to us today. And we hope to see you in our next episode of the Tyndall Talks.